It's only entertainment. Welcome back to The Talking Hedge. I'm Josh Kincaid, Capital Markets Analyst and host of your Cannabis Business Podcast. With me today is Brett Heyman. She is the founder of Eddie Parker in New York. Brett, thanks for being with us at The Talking Hedge. Thanks so much for having me. So for those who haven't heard about uh, the scene in New York, still fairly new, they've probably heard about uh, Scott's arm of uh, Riv Capital going in and spent about a quarter billion dollars on uh, Attain Health. It's probably one of the biggest like individual deals, but there are a lot of other businesses out there such as yours. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, Eddie Parker and maybe the influences, kind of how you got into the, the, the industry. Sure. So I started Edie Parker uh, in 2010. It's named after my daughter, whose name is Edie Parker Heyman. And we started as a line of just acrylic clutches. Uh, my background was in fashion. I worked at companies like Gucci and Dolce & Gabbana, and I covered accessories for nearly 10 years. And so when I started my own business, I sort of went into a white space of evening bags that were sort of whimsical and, and um, collectible, made in America, and a lot of personalization. Uh, in 2016, we launched a home collection and then started really thinking about cannabis as an extension of our home collection, because we felt like we were very aware of what was happening at West with cannabis. We were cannabis users in the office. We're a group of about 10 women, give or take. Um, and so we started thinking that nobody really made accessories in cannabis that looked like E. Barker accessories, which is to say really designed, really stylish, really collectible, meant to be displayed. Um, and so as we started working on that collection, we started doing a lot of dispensary research and found that really no cannabis brands uh, spoke to women or had that same ethos either. And so we started to think, wow, what if we could have a line of actual flower as a companion to the accessories we're making? And we were able to hook up with the team at Flocana in Northern California to start uh, and launched in California in May of 19. Awesome. There's there's a lot of head shops out there that that sell accessories, but none of them are um, female focused at all. Even the ones I go into are a little bit sketchy because they sell, you know, malt liquor and there's um, there's sketchy folks that go in there. Uh, there's there's, um, you know, not just homeless people, but there's there's people of, of all levels of, of sketchiness that are going into these um, these head shops. So definitely there's a need for that. One of the more famous head shops, at least around here, is Tokyo Smoke. Um, they tried to come down from Canada, but then once they were acquired, they said, nope, we're not dealing with the U.S. Um, would, you would you consider them your competitor? I mean, I went up when I was in Toronto and it didn't seem like there was designer or stylish or collections, but they are kind of a, a head shop. How would you compare your competition? Yeah. I mean, look, I think what we're doing hasn't really existed before. I mean, obviously I'm aware of Tokyo Smoke. I think that's really cool. I think that head shops have historically been sort of perfunctory, right? Like they are, as you said, can be sketchy. They're just sort of like a means to an end where you get something to smoke out of and then hide it away in a drawer. We're approaching it much more like traditional retail, which is to say, what's this experience? What do you feel when you walk into the store? You're encouraged to hang out. You're encouraged to sit down. There's other things to look at. Um, there's a story. There's brand values. We've been a brand for 10 years. So it's not just come and get rolling papers and leave. Like it's, it's a much more traditional shopping experience at a luxury level. 
And are you going to be expanding into a vertically integration in New York other than ancillary? Will you be growing or producing or have retail where you're going to be selling products? What's that outlook look like? We won't grow. I mean, our the way that we have worked is we've hooked up with MSOs in started in California and Colorado, but now our focus is Illinois, Mass, and east of the Mississippi. And I think that's largely a function of a. It's like just way too capital intensive to be vertically integrated in our experience, and it was impossible to do it in California. Um, and then also, like you know, we're not esoteric strain people. I am not a grower. We're not experts at that. So we feel like it's much better to hook up with people who have really good access to flower, access to really good retail locations and do what we do really well, which is all of the packaging, all of the marketing, all of the brand building and sort of just bring all of our skill sets together. And that's what we hope to do in New York. Okay. Are you anticipating uh, having anything, you mentioned Illinois and all of these um, high desirable, low license uh, states um, aside from California, that's an entirely different beast in and of itself, but the fifth largest GDP in the world makes sense to want to, you know, dabble into, but New York is an interesting spot. It's also limited license. There's a ton of tourists, assuming that they haven't also like fled to Florida, uh, or mm. at home or whatever. Um, New York's kind of going through a transition. It seems like, uh, where do you see the overall New York culture coming in at? Because there's there's this East Coast, West Coast that I'm, I'm trying to uh, take a poll on. And I'm asking people that that are from California and New York where they think those uh, those numbers were, will settle at. What is your opinion about the culture of New York and, and where it's at and how it will um, how it will ride out this this legislation and, and roll out? Well, I'm sure from your experience, New Yorkers and East Coasters in general think that like we're the greatest and I'm no different. So New York is my boyfriend. I think New York is the best. And I think New York cannabis is going to just like totally change the game. First of all, California is a mess. I mean, let's just be honest about it. California is such a disaster and they need to get it together. Um, But I think New York just New York in general, look at what we sort of our leaders in, when you look at culture, when you look at art, when you look at restaurants, I mean, not to say that California doesn't do a lot of that really well, they do, I'm obviously joking and I grew up in California, but I feel like New York is really like such a trend driver and such a culture starter. So I feel like New York cannabis is just gonna be so helpful for destigmatization and normalization. Um, I think what will be obviously tricky and, and what we're dealing with now, which I think you know most states who, when they legalize for rec uh, deal with is just this period of like legalization and decriminalization getting retail sales up, you know, that like 18 months, whatever it's going to be, there's dispensaries popping up in every corner um, that are not licensed and not legal. So what will happen there? What will happen to everybody who's being granted licenses who have no access to banks and bank loans? I mean, it's just, it's a mess. And I don't think we know how that's going to play out. And I think it's going to take a long time to sort of settle. How's New York going to be any different, though, than than California with that? Because it seems like every new rollout is an absolute disaster. California has its own issues because they should, in theory, be three separate states, northern, central, southern. They're so different in and of themselves with huge demographics and uh, and numbers. So, look, I mean, New York is, is a big state, too. But I'm wondering, California is known for its growing, New York is not. So I would agree with you that the branding, the money might be in New York, but the culture seems like it's in California. Um, And how all that plays out, I have no idea. Because if you guys are able to get, if federal legalization happens, 
probably all everything is going to be grown in Cali and then you guys will get your own branding. Um, and is that just kind of this, this synergy that you have to work with or is, does it even matter? I guess I'm curious if it's just going to be an ingredient and then you guys will just market that or you guys need it seed to sale. Yeah. I mean, I don't know either. Look, I think a lot of people would say now that like indoor weed, I mean, look, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not promoting one or the other, but I think a lot of people feel like indoor is much more desirable in a lot of places and, and better largely. So I don't know. I mean, I think there will be a lot of good grows here. And I think there's people who have been growing forever, obviously, and the, you know, um, uh, in the illegal markets. And I feel like hopefully they'll be able to, to get licenses and, and, you know, and share their strains. But, but I don't know. I think it's a huge question mark. Obviously it would be great on a federal level. If anybody sort of took the cues of what States that have done well, they use those learnings and what they've done badly, they use those learnings, but nobody seems to do that. Everybody seems to be starting from scratch as soon as they pass bills. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you have an advantage being close to DC where all those bills are being passed versus somebody who's a six hour flight away? Is there any advantage of, of the location you're at other than, you know, New York city and, and the um, tourism that it drives in? I don't think so. I mean, look, I think it is just the tourism and that it's just such a heavily trafficked place. And I think um, certainly, you know, in the city, I'm not really, I'm not familiar with what's happening outside of the city as much in terms of um, dispensaries that have popped up. But I think in the city, it's just like, it's, while it's not, you know, I don't know what's going to happen, but it's kind of magical when you see it. Like, it's really magical what's happening here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, we, we saw Elon Musk talking about uh, psychedelics, and that's bringing in a lot of um, other people to, to talk about it at the same level, whether they're um, athletes or uh, musicians or actors, actresses. Um, New York is probably a second home to a lot of that, those same individuals. California seems to be kind of the hub. And then maybe New York is like their second home or whatever. What is this scene um, going to look like, let's say five years down the road, um, when you're talking about designer and stylish and collections um, from the fashion world, it's like Tokyo, New York, London, Paris, right? I mean, California is not really LA might be on that list sometimes, but to me, it doesn't really resonate as much as those other places. How will um, celebrities influence cannabis? Kind of a loaded question, because I don't think they will, but what do you think? (laughs) Honestly, I agree with you. And I think that, look, I think cannabis will be a brand game. I think that most people are in agreement there that cannabis brands will be important. I don't know how long that'll take. I don't know what that will look like, but I think cannabis will be dominated by brands at some point. I think what we've seen from, you know, from mostly from the West coast, obviously, is that like celebrity fronted cannabis brands just aren't working. Nobody cares. It doesn't matter. And, and maybe that's still just cause it's early and it's like supply constrained and it's just, you know, there's like a still cannabis purchases are dominated by a certain type of person who doesn't care. Um, but look, I, I just don't think it matters. And I think when you look at, you know, alcohol too, like it took a long time for that to be at all, like, like I think about like Casa Amigos, obviously. Is that what it's called? The Clooney brand? Casa Amigos? Uh, I don't know. I think so. But I feel like, you know, it's just, I don't think celebrities are going to influence cannabis at all for a very long time. I think it's going to be just normalization, brands, and then maybe down the line. Okay. Branding is, is an interesting um, 
concept in the cannabis space because statistics will show you like Willie Nelson had to leave Washington State. There were no sales. Nobody cared. So the, a lot of people are finding branding by looking at the highest THC and the lowest price point, And then they find their brand from that experience. Do you think that's going to be the case moving forward? Or will people finally be able to resonate with brands? Because when you can't advertise and you can't make claims, it makes it really difficult to uh, draw a connection and an, an emotional um, sale on traditional um, platforms like TV, radio, whatever. So how how are you going to to incorporate your branding now knowing that? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think that's the huge challenge is really like the onerous marketing restrictions for cannabis promotions. And also the fact that like to be a brand, you need to be in lots of markets. You can't just like, you know, with all respect to California brands, like they think it's the be all end all, but like you have to be everywhere to really be a brand. Um, So I think for us, I mean, the benefit that we have currently is that we sell a lot of accessories. And so it's allowed us to be in dispensaries where we're not selling flour. So we're in Pennsylvania, we're going into Florida, Arizona, obviously, you know, the West Coast, like we're in um, dispensaries with our accessories. And then we're also in traditional retailers like an Urban Outfitters with our accessories. So it just gives us another avenue to speak to customers and to, you know, market sort of our more traditional heritage projects because products, because we have been a brand for now close to 12 years. So as I said, like there are brand values that we have. We have been making products that you can look to. We have an archive of products. We've supported certain causes over years and years. So I just think we have a little bit of an advantage in that way because we're not just selling pre-rolls in Illinois and Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. What are your main revenue drivers? Is it still mostly ancillary? Are you able to pull out some higher margin products out of you know, edibles, for example? We don't do edibles. We only have pre-rolls currently, um, and that's a license deal. So it's not, you know, that is not our biggest revenue driver. But I think, you know, in cannabis, the, our biggest revenue drivers are our rolling papers, our, our 510 batteries. Like it's just, you know, the lower price point items are still our biggest revenue drivers, but we are seeing more growth in the sort of more artisanal, higher price point, lower vol items like hand-blown glass bongs with an artist at a red hook and our um, handmade tabletop lighters. Mm -hmm. Is that demand getting any closer to being international with, you know, um, Thailand, for example, going online, Spain's got a really good um, cafe culture, um, is there inter- any international MA or expansion opportunities that you guys are looking at? We're looking at London. Um, we're not looking at, at Thailand or Spain, but we're looking at London. We think there's opportunity. We have a big London business with our heritage product um, and a lot of su- like you know social support in London. So I think that that would make the most sense for us first. Mm-hmm. Um, what about capital? Does that require you guys to, to seek some funding or are you guys self-funded? Are you guys looking to go public? What is, what is your, uh, your outlook on, on capital? Right now we're still just, we, you know, we've been friends and family funded for all this time. We don't have a tremendous burn. I mean, we're pretty lean, but I think obviously when we start to think about real expansion and really going into different markers, we're looking for a partner. We'd love really to have an MSO partner um, so we can sort of just grow the cannabis um, more strategically with someone who's invested in our business. And we feel like there's so much opportunity with what we're doing, especially with the ancillary products and the accessories that people just aren't doing. 
the the future of cannabis is is a little bit uh, hesitant. There's a lot of people with the economy right now on the sidelines. There's a lot of people that had plans and they're they've been delayed. Are you seeing the current economic situation uh, derailing plans uh, within New York or or within Ed Parker? I mean, yeah, I think it's bleak. I mean, I think the reality is like you could have Warren Buffett managing your money now for cheaper than you could buy, you know, air as an example. I mean, I'm making that up because I don't know what the markets look like today, but but it's like there's cannabis is, is a risk still. It's a high risk business. It's not federally legal. So I think there's just so little volume being moved around and it's it's really, really scary. And I think it is delaying plans. And I think for us, as I said, like we're lucky we don't have a tremendous burn um, and we can and be patient and sort of wait it out. But I think whatever we thought and whatever we thought was gonna happen in New York, I mean, I think we need to add a couple of years unless, you know, it can all change tomorrow. Like unless the house turns, the Senate turns and, and the Republicans really just care about capturing the tax revenue and not about any of the expungement and social justice reform. And, and maybe then they pass safe banking and, and then I think it changes again, but we just, I don't have a crystal ball. Right. Yeah, that would be nice if we did have a crystal ball, though, wouldn't it? It really would. There's so many things. You might even be able to turn that into some kind of ancillary pipe or something. (laughs) Uh, You mentioned you mentioned London, and I'm curious why. Well, like a two part question. Where where would you like to expand to if you had your choice and why London? Why London is really just, again, like we're trying to take less risk. It's like nothing, you know, it, it's scary right now and we need to make money. And so I think like London, because we have a built-in customer base, we have a base that's been buying our products for many years. And like, you know, we can make credible arguments that our cannabis accessories are an extension of our our handbags and our home goods. And so buy them as gifts, buy them to display, et cetera. Um, so I think it's really just about a, a, a considered risk that doesn't feel that scary. I mean, I don't know anybody, we don't have a big customer base in Thailand. So it would just be really starting from scratch. And that's just extremely capital intensive. I mean, getting boots on the ground, getting partners there, trying to market, whatever we could do. It's just really, it's so unknown. And I think for the next couple of years, we're just trying to do things that seem reasonable. Why do you think it is like, regardless of where you go, that, the focus is always on younger males and not the female community because females historically in the U S have been the um, purchaser of, of family goods. Right. So if that's the case, why wouldn't there, why, why aren't there more companies focused on females? Well, what's your opinion on that? I just think historically cannabis has been male dominated. I think, you know, from grows to dispensaries to, to um, executives. I mean, I, it's changing fast. Certainly we work with so many females now at MSOs and, and obviously there's like lots of dispensaries that are starting to think about exactly what you just said, that women should historically buy for the home shop. Um, so I think it will change. I just think it's hard to, to shift culture really quickly. And I think also like, I still think purchases are dominated by that heavy hitter male who wants, as you said, the most THC for the least amount of money. So there's not been that urgency to, to grow the business to these other, other demographics, but now there will need to be. I think there's sort of like a flat line plateau when everybody's like, all right, we need to expand who we're talking to in this business. Mm-hmm. What, what are the female focused products in Washington state, uh, 
white women 50 and older are the number one purchasers of pre-rolls. What are you seeing from Edie Parker and New York that are female focused or female driven uh, purchases or buying behaviors? I think it's the same. I think pre-rolls and I think a lot of vape pens, um, especially in those sort of like, you know, East coast cities where it's cold and people don't want to go outside necessarily and smoke their joints. You know, it's still, we have like a vape that felt very designed and branded. And I think there's something about that. Um, I, we find that, you know, obviously this is a statistic that you have as well, but like a lot of women are coming to cannabis to deal with menstrual pain and just other sort of um, maladies that are specific to them and have not, come to cannabis before. So I, I think, you know, I think also, I don't know how big edibles will be in New York. I have no idea, but I still personally love an edible. And I think it's, it's just nice for sleep, for discretion, for, for period cramps, all those things that women seem to be growing in large numbers in cannabis. I spoke to a female, um, ran company when I was in Vegas for MJ BizCon and they had a female focused, uh, suppository. Um, and they, they said that worked really well for them. Uh, something I hadn't even thought about kind of made me, you know, question why people go after products. So in your opinion, why do women go after pre-rolls or vape? Uh, is it because they don't want to look like a crackhead with a pipe? Is it they don't want to have the accessories? Is it they want the grab and go? Do they want the convenience? Do they not want to be seen with it? Like wh what is the, the rhyme or reason behind those purchasing decisions of why people, why women specifically like pre-rolls and or vapes in your opinion? I mean, I can't speak for all women. As I said, we're 10 women in the office and we're largely split. Like people like to smoke out of our pipes too. The girls in our office do. For me, it's really just easy. I mean, I have three children. I'm a working woman. It's complicated. Like cannabis is a little bit less of a ritual for me as it is kind of perfunctory. Like I like it. Like if I'm going to bed, if I'm going to have sex, if I'm going to take a walk, like I have a pre-roll, I take a little bit and that's done. Mm -hmm. So I think it really just depends if like if you have the ritual of really grinding the weed and using the pipe and just sort of sitting and like, that's great. Um, and then I think for some people, it's just the ease, but you know, I, again, I can't speak for all women. I think the women that I know do everything. Um, but, but I don't know. Brett, this is the time we take a rip off that crystal ball bong and uh, talk about the future of the industry. Where, if, if you had to look into that crystal ball and you saw the future of both New York female focused cannabis in the industry as a whole, what does that crystal ball look like? What is the future of cannabis? Again, not to be repetitive, and I'm sure you hear this all the time, but I really just think cannabis will be a brand game. I think there will be lots of brands. I think the brands that we think of now, other than like cookies and a stizzy, like I think a lot of brands disappear over the next couple of years and just don't exist. Um, I think consumption lounges will be really important in New York. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I think probably what you hear all the time, but I feel like we're well positioned for that. And I think that we will be able to play in that game and like make a beautiful retail experience, participate in consumption lounges. Um, and, and we're a brand that's talking to people that I think by and large will be future users, but I think they're coming. I went to some lounges. It's a class C felony in Washington state to maintain or operate a marijuana lounge, but in California they have them. So when I was in San Francisco for an event recently, did a, a San Francisco pot shop crawl, went to a couple of stores that had those in there and was a little disappointed by some of them. Um, and other ones, they were kind of intriguing. 
from from my standpoint, I look at a, a lounge as kind of the window into the soul of the community. As soon as we can have that, a lot of the folks, you know, the NIMBYs, not my backyard folks, will relax a little bit when they see that it's really kind of just docile by comparison to a bar that's open at 2 a.m. But right now, bud tenders are kind of that main driver of, of customers, uh, of customer um, suggestions or recommendations uh, at least from from the from the brand standpoint, from your perspective, what's going to be the bigger beneficiary uh, for brands? Is it going to be the bud tender or a lounge? I think the bud tenders are are always going to be hugely important. I think that's really true. Look, I hope also that like there's a world of, when we're talking about the future, we're talking about some sort of legalization, and then we can speak more directly to our customers through marketing, through advertisements tell a little bit more of a story because it's just not a complete picture when you're just reliant on the bud tenders. And frankly, the bud tenders, they're so transient, right? I mean, it's like you train them, you tell them your story and then they're gone. Now maybe they go to a different dispensary, but these are not long-term employees. So it's really hard as a brand to connect with bud tenders and, and get them, you know, behind your brand story, unless you have a lot of boots on the ground. So um, I think it's a challenge. And I think if in my crystal ball, if I had my druthers, like we would be able to, to just, tell a more complete picture. And those lounges, are you anticipating those as being kind of a demo day opportunity to kind of get in and, and get um, an opportunity for you to interact with customers that are there? Or what's, what's your feeling on, on lounges and how to take advantage of our, or the opportunity of that? Yeah. I mean, look, for me, lounges, like we so play in the destigmatization, um, you know, playground, because for us, it's like all about like, here's this beautiful thing. Here's this beautiful accessory to smoke out of here is this that we that's not going to like make you you know just be so so high um so i think for us the lounge is also just part of the experience like making it like here's this elevated experience you can have where as you said like the nimbies are not freaked out it's like it's 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 not disruptive it's not um hostile i can't think of any words anymore i'm, I'm out of words but but um basically so us yes i think like popping up there providing experiences, providing like, you know, doing um, talks or just speaking with customers, just like getting out into the streets a little bit more will be extremely helpful. Mm -hmm. uh, if anybody is interested in finding out a little bit more about ED Parker or want to contact you, or you guys, uh, you guys are online, you have a website, obviously. Um, what about social media and where can people find you at? Yeah, we, uh, we have a website. It's called ED, E-D-I-E, parkerflower.com. And then our uh, Instagram is the same, ED Parker Flower. And then those can direct you to our, you know, heritage sites at ED Parker as well. Um, and yeah, I mean, we're on uh, Heart Jane. We're on, I don't know, we're, 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 we're around. But if you check our website, our Instagram first, it can direct you to everywhere. Perfect. I think with that, we're gonna have to roll this one up. I wanna thank my guest, Brett Heyman. She is the founder of Edie Parker out in New York. Brett, thanks again for being with us at The Talking Hedge. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Josh. Thank you. I'm Josh Kincaid. This is The Talking Hedge. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, or don't. And I'm out. Don't forget to smash that like button on your way out check out these other videos that we've got. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season one of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, 
Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at dopehistory.com.